This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Fully vaccinated federal employees can travel for work with no government-wide restrictions now. New guidance from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force tells employees they should follow agency travel policy. FCW reports collective bargaining may cover those policies. The Department of Veterans Affairs keeps its electronic health records upgrade going after a review new VA Secretary Dennis McDonough ordered. McDonough says the agency will examine the project for about two more weeks to decide on changes the agency should make because of the review. FedScoop reports McDonough asked for the review in March because of implementation problems. Oracle's petitioning the Supreme Court to hear its argument in the Jedi cloud computing case. The U.S. Court of Federal Claims and a federal appeals court both decided potential conflicts of interest Oracle protested didn't impact the company's chances to win the contract. FedScoop reports Amazon Web Services has already asked the Supreme Court to intervene in the Jedi case too. The best places to work in the federal government, says NASA, the Government Accountability Office and the Congressional Budget Office delivered the best workplace results. This year's work included the challenges the COVID-19 pandemic caused. Lauren DeYoung-Shulman is Vice President for Research and Evaluation at the Partnership for Public Service. She's former Chief of Staff to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Lauren, thanks very much for coming on the program. As I look at these numbers, the phrase that came to my mind was, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poor. What are the trend lines that you see in this year's work? Uh, Francis, you're alluding to the remarkable success of NASA, which I will talk about a little bit later, but this was a remarkable, hopefully never to be repeated year in the federal government in 2020. And our 2020 best places to work in the federal government data show that federal leaders more than rose the challenge in so many ways in helping their workforce transition to remote work, in executing remote delivery for the American people, and the enormous number of new challenges that COVID-19 presented for the federal government. The data we collected shows that federal leaders, particularly supervisors, proved enormously dedicated to their teams and their missions at a point where things could have been totally chaotic. And majority of federal leaders understood and met the needs of the workforce during a really difficult time what did the employees who were happiest say they liked the most about what their leaders did or gave them or provided or whatever? So in this survey, there was a number of new questions specifically related to COVID. Uh, to COVID uh, and the Office of Personnel Management did a great job of thinking through what's really important for us to learn in this time period. So the things that they asked about were whether their organizations supported their mental and physical well-being during the pandemic, whether they received the resources they needed to do their work, particularly remotely, whether their agencies were able to successfully deliver on missions in the midst of a crisis with all of this going on, and if they had leaders who communicated effectively and prioritized their welfare, even from doing so across the country on Zoom and Teams and all the technical issues that come from that. In all of those cases, federal leaders scored extraordinarily high given the circumstances. 
above 80 points out of 100 in all of those questions and the supervisors were receiving remarkably good feedback from their employees across the board. Did you see any impact on the broader numbers that we've been collecting for years and years based on the impact of the kinds of uh, COVID effect that you just described, Lauren? For years, we've been seeing that overall, broadly, employees like their boss and maybe their boss's boss and they're not as sure about what's two or three levels up the chain, that kind of thing. Any movement in those kinds of numbers because of what we saw through COVID? Francis, you hit the nail on the head. Supervisors continue to receive high response, or sorry, high levels of feedback, positive levels of feedback from their workforce. It's when you talk about federal leaders, one or two or three levels across the board, that they receive lower, sometimes 20 points lower, levels of positive feedback from their workforce who are concerned about whether or not they are being empowered, whether or not they are being prepared appropriately, and whether or not they have an inclusive environment in which to do their work. This is something where supervisors can make a real difference in, but federal leaders at different levels also need to be ready to step up to the plate. And agencies should be thinking through how to grow and prepare and empower leaders so that they're not just doing right at the supervisory level, but thinking through their vision, creating an inclusive environment and empowering staff. So Robert Gibbs is a superstar again this year, the Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. They win again for the 900th year in a row. Who else did well? Who, uh, who maybe uh, accelerated progress that they've made in the past, Lauren? So it's a great question, and you highlighted this, some of this earlier. Government Accountability Office, which is always does remarkably well, um, placed first, um, followed by the Federal Trade Commission, with both of them on positive trajectories. Congressional Budget Office topped the chart for small agencies, and little-known office, Office of the Inspector General and the Tennessee Valley Authority, one of the smaller subcomponents, recorded the highest score among subcomponents. So all of them continue to be on a higher trajectory. Um, what are the, the broader trends for the organizations that are not moving in the right direction? What are the main reasons that we saw this year? So I think that for all of these cases, you saw leadership being a key driver and key indicator. And when I say the agencies in question, you will understand that those agencies experienced a lot of crisis and a lot of challenge in the past year. Department of Health and Human Services moved from second in 2019 to fourth in 2020. U.S. Agency for International Development, which was on the front lines of responding to COVID-19 across the world, slipped from 14th to 19th in the midsize category. Office of Management and Budget, which has an enormous, impossible job and amidst COVID-19, I'm sure had a number of new challenges to take on, fell from sixth place to 29th among small agencies. And I know the Biden administration is particularly focused on reversing these trends in employee engagement. So, How much oh, go ahead, Francis. No, please, please continue. I'll just say one more. Citizen, citizenship and Immigration Services, the Department of Homeland Security, move from the top 25% of subcomponents to the bottom 25% of subcomponents. They've been in the news for a number of years for challenges with their mission, resourcing, prioritization, and authority. It's not a surprise in many ways that they are experiencing leadership challenges and the workforce is feeling the hurt. So about 30 seconds left, Lauren. If I am one of these agencies that's moving in whatever direction, and I'm not a human capital leader, I'm at a, a higher uh, tier or in a different area, what do I do with these numbers to try to make a difference, not just to get better numbers next year, but to really help my employees? Tell your employees you heard them. 
tell them that you understand the challenges they experienced in the last year and you are working de dedicatedly over the next year to build stronger leaders, to build more empowered, inclusive teams, and to really understand the challenges that they faced in the last year to make progress on them. Lauren, thanks very much for coming back. It's great to see you again. Thanks so much, Francis. Great to see you too. Coming next, $2.6 billion on the line at the IRS, straight ahead on Government Matters, the extreme makeover that's overdue for America's tax collector. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Internal Revenue Service will give one company a swing at its Enterprise Development Operations Services contract. IRS leaders say the contract will go through a government-wide acquisition vehicle to be determined. Jim Williams is partner at Shambach and Williams Consulting. He's former head of the IRS's procurement organization. Jim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. When you look at your former organization, what do you see in this, uh, in this acquisition? What do you see in this RFP? Well, I think, Francis, first of all, it's great to see you. I think they have the right goals, and the right goals are try to look at all these different systems and how do we modernize them and, and really reduce and eliminate redundancies that are across the systems, the management, the operations. That's the right goal. Uh, this acquisition approach, uh, I do have some, some thoughts and recommendations, but the IRS is under an enormous spotlight right now. I mean, when you look at all the funding for all the things that have, are going through right now, they're really counter, counterbalanced by, you know, collecting taxes. And, and even if you look at what Charles Rosati, the former commissioner, has, the paper he's put out on shrink the tax gap, you know, $574 billion, everybody's counting on the IRS. So it's very, very important. Everything that they do coming up in the next decade and the next few years, and, and this is important, too, what they're trying to accomplish. The challenge here, too, is that they're working with infrastructure that hasn't, some of it hasn't been modernized since you worked on it 20 years ago, and some of it you didn't get to then, so it's even older than that. How does that impact the way that an organization should look at an acquisition like this, Jim? Well, this is not just an acquisition. Even though as an acquisition, it's bigger than the prime contract we had, which was really a handful of very, very large uh, systems like Cade, like the uh, integrated financial system. This is probably five times that. It's taking 20 to 25 systems, major systems for the IRS, taking all of their development, modernization, enhancement, and O&M, and putting it all under one roof. And that is an enormous change management uh, problem and challenge. All right. You said recommendations. What do you see here that you would like to would like to see either different or make sure happens as this project moves forward? Whatever. Well, two things. One is I think they could use some outside help. And I was honored to sit on the recent Social Security modernization panel under Alan Baludas with Rennie Dipentima and, and a cast of uh, really terrific former government people who gave them recommendations about their modernization. I think to prepare for something this massive, this important, they should seek an outside set of advice. People who've been there and done this kind of things. And, you know, whether you talk to, you know, Charles Rosati or, you know, people 
you know, I can think of a panel right now and maybe you put it under MITRE, but give them some advice on how to get ready for this. That's number one and how to manage this because this is really a four part partnership between the CIO, the IRS business side, the procurement side and the contractor and contractors. And one other recommendation is when you look at trying to put this all under a single award, it seems as though you're passing off the integrator duties to one company in the private sector. That doesn't work. You need to have the IRS very involved in integration. And I look at the example of Sagar Simon over at GSA, where he's brought all his contractors together to look at his ecosystem as part of tech exchanges. He brings them together. He understands how to, to integrate. And I'll say one last thing about integration. Charles Rosati used to say it is much harder and much longer, but the payoffs are enormous. So I think the IRS is attacking the right things, but with all the other challenges, I think they could use some outside help. That's number one. If you don't mind, number two, they said in the RFI that they want the prime contractor to do 50% of the work. I think that is a giant mistake because you've got a bunch of large IT systems integrators already there. And if you require that one of them who's the awardee does 50%, those other two who are huge parts of their critical suppliers are probably left out. And you've, and you've got great small business goals. I support that. But that 50% goal for the prime is way too limiting. It limits the partnerships. It limits your access to the talent you need. And, and you want all of those companies that have great people with great experience in IRS to be part of this modernization. Eliminate the 50% goal. Does it make sense to run this through a GWAC as IRS has said it's going to do, Jim? I, I think a, a GWAC is fine. I think the Alliant is a good vehicle for this. Uh, I, I don't think it really matters. That's really you know, a, a best-in-class path, and I think Alliant GWAC is fine for this. But, but I do think they, you know, both from an acquisition program and even the business side of IRS, there's a whole governance behind this that needs to be looked at because you're talking about something that is so critical to the station. They're talking about two and a half million man hours under this contract. This deserves some 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 special attention advice to make sure you can be as ready as possible to get it right. You mentioned the Social Security uh, board, the, the advisory board that helped SSA uh, to build a strategy. Uh, and that you were on that. You're right. The people that you served with, including yourself, were an all-star panel. You volunteering to do some, the same thing for the IRS, Jim? Uh, of course I would. I mean, I, I worked there for 12 years. I love the service. You know, they're the, if you look at Fortune 500, they're Fortune 1. Uh, they're a great organization, great people. I have a lot of respect for Shanna Webers. And, I, you know, Nancy Seeger, I don't know as well the CIO, but heard great things about her. I just think they, they need some help to make sure that they can really get the right foundation to be successful. I'll pass you your phone number. Thanks very much, Jim. It's great to have you on the program. Up next, an all-time high in spending for multiple award contracts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the money's going and where it's not. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Government agencies could spend as much as $173 billion through multiple award contracts by the end of this fiscal year. 
and that may only be a preview of what's to come. Paul Murphy, Senior Data Analyst for Government Contracts at Bloomberg Government. Paul, welcome. It's good to see you again. What stands out most to you about the work that you've done on Max? Well, a number of things. One is that the spending is robust. It keeps going up. Um, another is that, uh, you know, one out of every four contract dollars is now uh, spent on a multiple award contract. Um, the count of Max, the number of Mac uh, contracts is up 26% in the last several years. I think the most surprising thing that came out of uh, our analysis this year was that as Mac spending has been going up, um, the number of large businesses receiving Macs went up, but the number of small businesses actually went down. The number of contracts went up, the number of uh, recipients went down. And we like to, you know, when we do this kind of analysis, we, we like to look for these divergences, these, these kind of interesting uh, trends going in opposite direction. And this is definitely one of them. And I think it feeds into a discussion, a broader discussion about what's happening you know, th across the uh, uh, entire federal government with regard to uh, contract consolidation. What is your sense of what's driving that, Paul? Well, there's a number of things. Um, you know, one is, I think we're, we're kind of on the tail end of the uh, you know, withdrawal of military forces from the Middle East. So that uh, has continued to play a role for the last several years. But uh, I think um, th there's also been a lot of mergers and acquisitions, of course. But I think there's a lot going on in terms of the um, uh, increased uh, emphasis on efficiency and category management and the drive to consolidate uh, contracts for efficiency purposes. There's uh, increased sophistication uh, uh, in, in uh, the, the kind of uh, work that uh, the government expects contractors to perform. There's you know, CMMC certifications, there's ISO certifications, uh, FedRAMP certifications. The work is getting more complex in order to you know, confront a lot of these um, you know, threats that, that uh, we're perceiving with um, uh, cybersecurity and, and, and national security. The number that you put together that struck me, uh, that resonated with me the most, fiscal 2020 DOD spending, 92 billion, outpaced civilian agencies, 67 billion. Is DOD overusing these uh, MACs? Are uh, the civilian agencies underutilizing them, or am I just thinking about it wrong, Paul? No, I, I think DOD is uh, you know, a good example of a company that's trying to move toward um, you know, the, the category management uh, contracting goals. Um, you know, they have these teams in place in the different agencies to advocate for uh, spend, what's called spend under management. And uh, DOD has been uh, you know, responding. A lot of their, their uh, contracts now are moving into you know, a consolidated um, uh, offerings. You have you know, the, the ITES contracts, but also just generally their increased use of the GSA schedule of OASIS. Seaport, uh, Seaport NG is ramping up. Um, and uh, they're also uh, you know, ramping up uh, use of, they're finally starting to convert over to uh, uh, enterprise infrastructure, the new telecommunications contract. So we're seeing um, you know, DOD you know, uh, moving ahead with these uh, you know, OMB and GSA initiatives. And this is going to accelerate, it looks like, from the research that you've done, Paul. You're right, 15 MAC opportunities have an estimated total value between $175 and $193 billion. It's only going to get bigger, isn't it? 
Well, the spending will get bigger. What's interesting is that some of these opportunities are actually representing consolidations of contracts. You know, you have, you know, Big Mac is going to consolidate, um, you know, Oasis and HCATS and BMO. And uh, you have Polaris that's going to consolidate uh, Alliant. Um, and uh, uh, you have the um, consolidation of CIO SP3 and SP3 small business into CIO SP4. So there, at the very highest levels of, of this uh, kind of contracting, multiple board contracting, there's actually some consolidation. But then you have agencies like USAID that's bucking the trend and they're splitting this big global uh, logistics supply chain uh, requirement into 10 different contracts. So, um, I, but I think overall, we're going to see uh, an increase in spending. The actual number of uh, contracts uh, may moderate and, and could even decline depending on uh, you know, how spending goes. But you know, with this budget and, and the proposed uh, you know, increases in, in, in infrastructure uh, spending, um, max spending we expect is gonna be pretty, pretty robust. What does that mean for the companies that are trying to get pieces of that business, Paul? What it looks like um, is that um, uh, particularly small businesses, if they're not going to be able to uh, you know, get a toe uh, in the door, if uh, you know, they're going to be facing hurdles, you know, certification hurdles, um, uh, past performance hurdles, um, that they're going to have to be looking toward uh, teaming and subcontracting. At the same time, you know, <laughs> some agencies like uh, NITAC over at uh, uh, um, uh, HHS, they uh, uh, offices like NITAC at HHS, they are um, actually, it appears, kind of restricting the, the terms and conditions under which companies can team for CIOSP4. So there's a, a lot of concern. They just put out an amendment uh, last week. There's a lot of concern about the conditions uh, they're imposing and whether they're too restrictive. Paul, thanks, uh, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Uh, Francis, always good to see you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can get it at govmatters.tv and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.